Welcome along, everybody. It's the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. Well done for downloading. My name is David Kushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. And as always, I am joined here at Leaders Global HQ by John Porch, Lead Writer for the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? I am doing very well, John. And we've got another archive session Uh, to play for everybody uh, on the podcast today and we're taking a look at risk mitigation, preparation and approaches to failure in the volatile environment of combat zones, are we not? That's right David, going back to New York Leaders Performance Summit 2016. On stage that day was Staff Sergeant Douglas Ketchigan who was a pararescue man or PJ as they're called with the US Air Force. Now he'd be sent into war zones with his team to jump behind enemy lines They'd provide emergency treatment to injured service personnel before extricating them. And I have a little soft spot for Doug, actually, because he was my first interviewee upon arriving at Leaders back in 2015. And I'm happy to say, David, that he was friendly, polite and courteous, so there are further strings to his bow. Like your good self, John, uh, who else are we going to hear from? Doug was joined on stage by New York Times best-selling author Adam Alter, who is an associate professor of marketing at New York University Stern School of Business. Regular listeners will also recognise the dulcet tones of moderator Dara Harris, who is an assistant professor of child psychiatry and director of wellness and high performance for graduate medical education at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Sounds like a terrific listen, John. What else are they going to be talking about? Well, David, they also touch upon the importance of checklists in mitigating human error at tense moments, as well as the impact of hierarchies and the importance of humility in decision-making. And curiously, there's also a distinction in the way that genders experience failure. And if you want to find out who handles it better, I suggest you listen on. We will do just that in just a moment, uh, John. But before that, let me tell the good people listening uh, that if you'd like to join us live at one of our remaining summits this year, it's very easy to do so. Uh, Inquire online today, leadersinsport.com slash membership. Remember, we're hopping across the pond to Chicago in July, the 10th and 11th at Soldier Field. We're going to Florida in August, which should be fun. And finally, we're heading back to London for our flagship event in November. So plenty to look forward to, leadersinsport.com slash membership. John, shall we travel back in time to New York 2016? Let's press play. So we thought this would be a really interesting group to really explore the influences on our decision making. So a lot of the times we want to imagine ourselves as these purely rational beings who are going through a cognitive process to make a decision. And what I think Adam's research and Doug's life experiences bring together is our decisions are really influenced by many, many different things. So we're going to explore some of these scenarios together, going back and forth between what the research shows us and what some of these experiences are. So Doug, will you start us off with you know, a concrete scenario like coming on to a scene where there are multiple casualties and how the PJs think of that? Sure. So for, for those of you who don't know what pararescue is, it's the only group in the US military that's devoted strictly to personnel recovery and technical rescue. So one of our primary missions being the Air Force is recovering down air crew members. So I think an example that would typify kind of like our, our leadership structure and our organizational behavior would be, you know, how we, how we proceed at a crash site. So typically if a helicopter or a plane crashes, there's multiple people inside. And it's not like you show up on scene and the doors are open for you. So the first thing you have to do is, you know, extricate those people. And they could be, if they weren't wearing a seatbelt or they weren't tied in, they could have been ejected from the, the aircraft. They could be trapped underneath it. They could be crushed and compressed. So it generally requires a pretty technical 
extrication just to get those casualties out of the helicopter. And if we're talking about risk mitigation, one of the most important things from a leadership perspective is leaders can, cannot be myopic. So as soon as leaders get too like, hands-on into patient treatment or extrication, they lose all their situational awareness. And then if the leader doesn't have situational awareness, you're obviously not doing a very good job as an organization of risk mitigation. So coming on scene, you know, first thing you have to do is coordinate security. Where, where are the, where's the security element gonna go so that the extrication team can go in and do their job without you know, any enemy threat, or at least that the enemy threat is addressed? And extrication is kind of like putting together a puzzle. If you, don't, if you take the wrong steps initially and you try to rush it, then you can go down a rabbit hole where it's kind of like making the wrong turn on the highway. And the only way to get back is to go back in the direction you were coming from and then go in the right direction. So you need that, that leader to, be, to say, okay, this is where the guy with the jaws of life is gonna go. This is where the guy with the crash axe is gonna go in the lift bags and almost like a conductor conducting an orchestra, but you don't want that conductor playing an instrument. So team leader will kind of coordinate where all those extrication elements go. And then once the extrication is completed, then you have to go on to the medical treatment. And in a mass casualty incident, there are going to be different priorities or patients with different levels of medical attention that's required. So obviously you want to evacuate the most, uh, the most injured casualties first, and that's up to the team leader to determine once the, all those patients have been stabilized and brought back to a centralized location called the casualty collection point, team leader's gotta figure out, okay, who has to get out first? Who's gonna get out next? And a lot of times, um, different medical facilities that we have access to have different surgical capabilities. So if someone has a head injury, for example, the closest head injury place in the Horn of Africa might be four hours away, whereas the guy who just broke his ankle, maybe he can go to the place that's 45 minutes away. So, and while this is going on, there's all kinds of aircraft and aerial assets overhead. And while the worker bees are working and, and treating patients and extricating, the team leader is talking to those overhead air assets and those assets are telling them, hey, there's enemy you know, a mile to your south maneuvering on you. And so there's all these things going on and the team leader gets very task saturated as it is. So I think the key takeaway is as soon as that team leader starts you know, treating wounds and putting people on litters and getting a crash axe and banging on a helicopter, that, that's probably one of the, the easiest ways for all of your risk mitigation contingencies to go out the window. So as hard as it is for a team leader, especially in our job, because we all want to help each other, um, the team leader has to be as hands-off as possible. There are obviously going to be times when we're overwhelmed, limited resources, and the team leader is going to have to do more than he would normally like to do. But I think the key takeaway is the team leader needs to maintain that situational awareness and try to be as hands-off as possible and see the big picture. Which is interesting in terms of the research that you've talked about with if you are in a sports setting and you are thinking of the entire team mm -hmm. that you face versus thinking of a couple of players. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, so um, my background is in social psychology. So I'm very interested in how people interact with each other in different settings and the sports setting is one of them. And the first study ever conducted in social psychology was uh, in 19, 1898 in <laughs> Indiana. And they basically wanted to see whether elite sports people competed better when they were in the presence of others or when they were alone. And they basically found that if you just have other people in the room with you, you will compete better. It sort of liberates, they call it liberating latent energy. It just comes from somewhere just by having other people around that that, that sort of G's you up to do a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been a lot of research since then, but more recently, one of the questions was, how many other people should there be? Hmm. Should you be focusing on one other competitor if it's a competitive sport, or should it be 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000? What if you're in a race with thousands of other people, say it's a marathon, for example? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the research shows that you do much better when you focus on just one other or a couple other competitors, because 
If you can focus on one specific concrete example of a competitor, you do much more sort of mental work to engage and you end up performing a bit better. It's also, it leads you to be a little bit more narrowly focused and sharply focused and so you're less distracted. And so there's a lot of evidence that there's this sort of drop off. You do much better when you focus on at least one other person, but there's a drop off when you focus on more than two, three or four. And I think that's the same basic idea. You end up getting overwhelmed by the number of different pieces of information you're keeping in your head. And you, when you think about the working memory capacity of something like seven things at once, when you're getting in these complex situations, it sounds like there are a lot of procedures in your world to control what's in front of you. We know the stress will make you myopic. So then we're trying to use different support structures or designations of jobs to make it so that you can just focus. Is that some of the noise canceling stuff that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, the military is obviously very huge on procedure. And the idea is not to make people robotic, but to understand that under stress, unless you're really prepared, most people don't, don't perform better under stress. If they're, if they're ill-prepared, they're going to perform worse. And so if you think of like a pilot, for example, you could have a pilot who's flown 10,000 sorties. And when some of you guys flew here to New York, if I'm flying, I would still like that pilot, regardless of how many sorties he has, to read the checklist before he takes off. Because experience, obviously, you know, leads to better intuition in a, a catastrophic situation. But in a true emergency, you don't want to have to improvise too much. You want to rely on procedure because in our world, human error is the number one source of any kind of safety incident. It's not like our gear that's going to fail us. I mean, typically, for, another thing we do is like high angle rescue, so like rope rescue. And we will not do any kind of scenario unless our gear has a 10 to 1 safety factor. So if we're going to raise you know, two people, which is, let's say, 200 pounds or 400 pounds with equipment, our gear is going to be rated to 4,000 pounds. So the, the carabiner or the rope is not going to fail us. It's going to be a human being making a bad decision or the team not interacting well enough to, to catch something. So that's why we have these checklists. And I mean, when we parachute, for example, even on a training jump, um, we have our, our riggers who pack our parachutes. So when a rigger packs a parachute, he has to go through his own checklist. Then he's got a supervisor with his checklists to check the person who initially packed the parachute. Then the jump master, or the person who's kind of figuring out the spot on the, on the team that's jumping, the jump master will do a jump master inspection brief for the team, where every team member, by the numbers, goes over all these individual components of the parachute. And then when you get on the plane, you, have, you do a more cursory check where your teammates checks you to make sure nothing has moved. So there, you, you need to have that redundancy, and you need those checklists so that you're not relying on memory, because you know, sometimes you can be overwhelmed by details and these stressful situations. It's really about like, what, what can you do right now in front of you? What's the, what's the one step you can take? And that's why checklists are really helpful. We were talking about in the break room back there. I mean, 10 years ago, surgeons were doing surgery on the wrong leg. And you could be the most skilled surgeon in the world, but, and you, you, you almost take it for granted. Like, th there's no such thing as a routine surgery, but if you've done 10,000 hip replacements, maybe it is routine for you, but it becomes so routine that you forget to do it on the right leg. So if you recognize that human error is the number one source of any kind of safety incident, then you have to take steps to mitigate that. And that's why I think checklists and just what we call amongst ourselves and the team sanity checks. People talked earlier on about like having this sort of egoless, um, horizontal leadership structure where even though in the military, it's obviously very clear who's in charge. At any point, any team leader is receptive to somebody underneath him saying, hey, like, why are we doing this? And it, sometimes it takes more courage to say, this is stupid, we shouldn't be doing it, than to press on because in our community, I mean, people are selected for their motivation and they're almost motivated to a fault. There's kind of like a hard line between hard and stupid and we're kind of, you know, we're tiptoeing on that line. And so it, it's a lot harder for guys like us to say, you know, like this doesn't look good, we shouldn't do it, than to press on, because that's what inherently we want to do. I think that is something that medicine is struggling with. You know, even with the infusion of checklists, there's still the 
people dynamic of how you perceive hierarchies. And I think that's another part of your research that's interesting about you know, really being aware of how we're impacted by the other people that we might be in the break room and we'd be willing to trash talk any decision that's made. Mm -hmm. Then we get in the operating room and we don't you know, ask a question. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think a lot of the time practice is not ideal because it's just too far removed in certain critical ways from the actual act of performing, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter whether it's PJs or, or sports people. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's, that's critical because you don't know which elements that differ are the critical ones that'll change how you perform when it comes down to the actual act of, of performing in the, in the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that people generally just fall back on defaults or whatever they've done most often. And so that's why it's obviously so critical to have these checklists that allow you those defaults. They're the things that you end up falling back on. It ends up being very effective mm -hmm. in, uh, in stressful situations. So I think that's right. Absolutely. So what are some of the things you've found that do influence decision making that are just interpersonal? And uh, well, th There are a lot. I mean, so the, the presence or absence of other people, I think, is critical. There's, um, there's, uh, there's some really interesting research looking at how, um, as I said, the, the number of people you think about influences uh, how, you, how you behave. Even the presence of other people looking at you, the presence of being watched, the, the sense of being watched can really change how you perform. Um, so there's some of this classic work was done with other animals as well, showing that just by having them be sort of, they, they created this little, this is with cockroaches actually, so it's a long way from human no performance. Way. Yeah. So it's, but it's the same basic idea. If you have these little cockroaches in a maze and there's a little sort of stadium that you've created, a cockroach stadium, <laughs> that when the cockroaches are being watched funded by others, by someone. This, this was funded, yeah. Yes, cockroach research. Cockroach funding. So okay, there's a so whole the body at the NIH stadium. that funds cockroach mm. research. <laughs> and when you have these little cockroaches watching the other ones, they fall back on whatever the default action is. So if they've been trained to do a certain thing, they'll keep doing that more and more and more vigorously which is why professional cyclists in the presence of other people will cycle better and faster. If you try to do something new and different and something complex and it's not something you've had a lot of experience or practice with, you kind of get tongue-tied, you struggle, and you end up uh, not doing well at all. So that's why it's really important to have these defaults that you develop through practice and training mm -hmm. because that is what you'll fall back on, especially when you're being watched in the heat of the moment. So when we um, teach medical students, we do a lot of simulation with actors so that the first time they introduce themselves, and it is spectacular in that first year, they, when they come in, they drop the clipboard, they put the blood pressure cuff on in a way that it makes it explode when you pump it up, um, because it's cognitive load, even if it's something they've obviously done yeah. many, many times. Right. Um, so it, you can see that impact you know, in all of those different places. So what about the the kind of relationships you build in your training and the empathy and the kind of connections you have sort of that you build in training and then once you're in the field you're working with, what are those like? So I think that works on two levels. It works on kind of like the team level and then if you're a medical practitioner treating somebody who's undergone some kind of a trauma, you know, how you, how you perceive that trauma and, and trying to take your emotions out of it. So I think the, the military generally is an example of like positive peer pressure in that I, I mean, you could ask me and anybody else who kind of does what I do. I would say that our biggest fear is, is you know, is falling short in front of our, our fellow soldiers. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we're, everything we do in training, we have to be accountable to each other. Um, so, for example, like, if we do something in a training environment and someone is kind of, like, you know, slacking off or, or not pulling his weight, a lot of times what they'll do is the collective punishment thing where, like, that person who was, you know, kind of holding the rest of the team back he'll get to sit out the next training evolution that's physically demanding, and he'll get to like count while the team does push-ups for three hours or something. And so, you know, unless you're like a sociopath, 
that's, that's a pretty easy way to get someone who's not cutting his weight to do it. And if that person's not capable, then he'll be weeded out later on. So that's another key point is like having a selection process, talking about talent acquisition earlier, like you've got to have a process that you trust because you know, people are the foundation of anything. I mean, the US Air Force is arguably, we, we had NASA here before, but the most technologically sophisticated organization in the world, but you know, the people still need to operate that technology. And talking about like, you know, if you're trying to get a bomb on target, like usually the, the bombs go where you tell them to go. And if it hits the wrong place, it's because somebody in the ground, you know, told it to go to the wrong place, but the laser is gonna point to where you told it to go. Um, so I think being accountable to each other is huge because it's, uh, you're not thinking about yourself as much and what could happen to you as like, I don't wanna screw up because like, I can't let this guy down. So I think that makes it easier for us to do our jobs on an individual level. And then once you're treating a patient, and I mean, we see, you know, usually helicopter crashes and improvised explosive devices don't end well. Um, you see some pretty traumatic things, but once again, falling back on procedure and, and saying, okay, what, what can I do right now to help this person versus, wow, like this guy is a, a father and he's got two kids and his, his wife is at home. I mean, there's a time to think about that later on and this is not the time to discuss how we, you know, how we deal with that and, and internalize it after the fact, but I think adhering to procedure and then you have to kind of try to take the emotion out of it and fall back on, you know, your sort of mental checklist as to what can I do right now to be, to be productive? Because if you, as horrible as it sounds, if you think of that person as a human being in the moment, I, I think that uh, it can actually have an adverse effect on, on you trying to achieve the mission. So like I said, there's a, there's a time and a place to internalize that stuff and humanize it later on. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, at that crash site. Now we're, we're all human, we do, that does enter into your mind, but you try to block it out as best you can by adhering to procedure. Mm-hmm. That is a, a difficult balance, right? So there's the task in the moment and then the other interpersonal pieces. I thought it was interesting when we were talking ahead of time about obviously there are a lot of fears you don't have, but there are still things that make you afraid. And I think there's a cultural lie that fear goes away mm-hmm. and then we actually are disserviced by that. Um, so what would make you afraid? What were you? As we're talking about that backstage, I think that you know preparation and and even like resiliency and mental toughness, if that even exists, are context dependent. So I have, I have rehearsed combat search and rescue over and over again. So scenario after scenario, different contingencies, you know, what you want to happen versus what can happen on a very meticulous level. So I'm prepared for it and preparation breeds confidence. We have people here from like the NFL and MMA. We had the Vikings GM here earlier. Like if you told me that I had to play a running back, you know, for another team against the Vikings defense, I would honestly be more scared doing that than I would going to Afghanistan with the Taliban around. I would be more scared or nervous having to get, you know, in an MMA cage with, you know, a UFC fighter, but because I'm not prepared to do that. And if you're not prepared, how can you mitigate risk if you don't have a strategy to, um, to deal with whatever it is that you encounter? And I don't, I don't know what I would do if, you know, the heavyweight UFC champion tried to punch me in the face, but I know that if someone shot at me, I've got a procedure I can fall back on and you know, with the, with the team that I have and the guys I trust, we can, you know, we can fall back, maneuver on the enemy, we have air assets overhead. So I think that's really important too, because a lot of times people really try to put, like, push this mental toughness thing on athletes, and you have to make sure that you're doing it in a very context-specific way, because I don't know if it always carries over if you're doing things that are totally extraneous to what it is that athlete has to do in competition. I think that preparedness is so important because, uh, so the main thing that I study is how very small changes in the world around us have massive magnified consequences. And um, so, you know, if you're preparing the things that you can prepare, there are still going to be those small contingencies and and things Mm -hmm. that go along along on the periphery that change outcomes. So just one classic example of a very small effect, I was talking to you about this earlier, is uh, looking at Olympic competition. So when you look at combat sports Mm -hmm. where you've got, say, 
judo, taekwondo, Greco-Roman wrestling, freestyle wrestling, the way the International Olympic Committee assigns uniforms before each one is they randomly draw one competitor to wear red and one to wear blue. They've been doing this for, for years and years for many, many Olympic Games. And they do this because it's supposed to be fair. The idea is that one person's going to be randomly drawn to wear it one or the other, and that the next time it might be a different color. But it turns out that it's not fair. And if you look at the outcomes of these, these bouts across time, what you see is that the person wearing red wins when they're closely matched in competition about two-thirds of the time, which is outrageous, right? These are the people who are the very best at what they're doing in the world, and one small decision that's designed to be fair produces an outcome that's hugely, hugely biased. And there are a lot of these different effects going on all the time, and lots of reasons for them too. So mm -hmm. if you give a referee who's, or, or a, an umpire in various sports pieces of footage and you say which team is playing better, they will be swayed by what color uniforms the teams are wearing. Mm -hmm. And you can digitally alter using CGI technology, you can alter which team is wearing which color, and then the same referee looking at the same footage will say that the opposite team is doing better. So there are a lot of these, that's just obviously one of thousands and thousands of examples. These things are always around us shaping all sorts of outcomes. So that this sort of preparation is so critical because you've got to cut through all of that right. other noise to, to try and produce consistent good outcomes. Everybody's away jerseys should be red. Right, you right, should yeah. game it. And, yeah, so that's, and, uh, that's the, the most obvious, uh, the most obvious is that every team should be wearing red all the time. All the time. Yeah, it makes it really tough to distinguish it. the, comp the, the right. teams, but yeah. But you know, I also read some of the stuff you talked about with ultra marathoners, um, and there's one here in New York that's yeah. an obscene amount of miles. I mean, Thirty-one hundred miles, yeah. I mean, and it takes what fifty-two yeah. days yeah, or something. Yeah, you've got a maximum of fifty-two days to run around a single block in Queens. It's half a mile, and they run around this block like six thousand times over the space of two months in the summer, and it's run every year. And it's it's this incredible endurance event. It's obviously much longer than any other event that goes on. So the ambition tolerance and the idea that at some point you, it's not just the accomplishment, but that you're just pushing to push yeah. um, is an interesting one. Do you see that play out in sports and other areas? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the question is, why would anyone do that? Yes. And, and a lot of the training yes. we do, <laughs> that's, that, that was the question I asked myself right. when I wrote about it. Yeah. I couldn't understand it. So I actually interviewed some of the people who had done it. And it's hard to work out, but a lot of what we do is kind of inherently unpleasant. The act of practicing, if you do it right, gets to be unpleasant. That's, mm -hmm. that's how you know you're doing it right. And you're pushing yourself against the margin. And these people, when you ask them why they're doing it, it's all a sort of search for meaning. You know, different people have different ways of doing that. Some seek religion, some seek mm -hmm. uh, hobbies. For them, it's this very extreme version of a hobby where they'll do this over and over and over again. And a lot of them are members of a group, a religious group. Um, they had a, 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 the disciples of a, a guy who passed away a few years ago. But it's, it's, this, uh, it's basically all that it is, is a 60-day long search for meaning through hardship. And it's interesting to me, I'd be curious too, do you see sort of halo effects in terms of the risk? If someone is willing to do the risks that are involved in your job, do they then take other risks? Or is it really confined to the one thing you do? I think that's kind of dependent on the person. I think there's kind of a perception that like in the special operations community, it tends to be people who are kind of more cowboyish and, and like to take on more risks. But I, I found that actually most of the guys that I work with are, they're very methodical and calculating about the risks that they do take um, because we're essentially playing poker every day and everything, every, 
event that we do is risk mitigation. So even things that we take for granted over time, like, you know, I probably fast rope out of a helicopter, I can't even remember more times, but every now and then you'll check your email and it's like so-and-so that you know fell off the fast rope and broke his back or apparel, and it's like, wow, like that's actually dangerous, you know? So um, <laughs> it's, it's a very humbling job and you always get brought back to earth. And I think that if there was, if there are people who are, tend to like take a lot of risks, they're doing it on their own, they're not doing it on the team's time because I think that the, the system that we've developed is not conducive to those people succeeding and, 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 and making it through. So if they do have those behaviors, they're not doing it uh, with the rest of the team because like I said, we're trying to be accountable to each other and if you're putting yourself at risk, you're putting your teammates at risk and we work in such small teams that you know, if we're, if we're a five-man team going into you know, like a crash site or something, we really can't afford to lose one guy to an injury. Um, so even if it's like coming in, to, you know, parachuting and you mistime your flare on landing, like one guy with an ankle sprain, now it takes two people to carry him on a litter, like we can't do the mission anymore. So um, I, I, I don't think that, you know, if, if you have the right systems in place that it's, it's, it allows people who are overly risky and take unwarranted risks to, to get through the, uh, the cracks. It's interesting, you know, we were talking about there's sort of two F words, fear and failure, and there are actually two that I think medicine is really struggling with. Um, but you were just raising that when the stakes are high, which in theory they are in medicine too, um, but we have historically avoided talking about failure. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how you look at a mission where, you know, somebody's flare doesn't and you know, they are injured. How do you all approach failure? Yeah, I think with... with a lot of like performance anxiety that people have is driven by fear of failure. And if you're afraid of failure, it's probably because you haven't really experienced it. I think that if you will we'll deliberately, you know, set people up to fail in training, not catastrophically where we're, we're compromising safety, but small fail failures that people can learn from because I think it sends the wrong message, especially in, in our environment, which can be very chaotic, that like you can do all the right things that you're supposed to do in combat and you could still lose or still have an adverse outcome. And so if, you're, if, you're, if you don't ever train for failure, then you're going to be too rigid when the circumstances change in real life. And obviously, I mean, even in a sporting event, like the, your opponent has a say in what you do too. So it's, 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 it's kind of that balancing act once again, though, because there's a whole learned helplessness phenomenon. So if all you do is allow people to fail in training, well, then you've taught them how to fail. So it's kind of balancing success with failure. And it's just like, you know, we have some, some trainers in, in the audience here. Like, it's just like athletic training. You want to kind of find just that right amount of stress that elicits the adaptations you want, but not so much stress, i.e. so much failure that the body can't adapt to it. And sometimes you have to push people a little bit beyond what they, they can adapt to, but you can't do that for very long. You've got a lot of people to recover and you know, have, have periods of success interspersed with those periods of deliberate failure. Um, but the idea with even inducing failure is you're teaching people, okay, how, how can you adapt? Um, how can you rely on procedure now to do the next thing? Now the mission has changed. You were here to do one thing that didn't work out, now what are you gonna do? So I think failure, if it's, if it's intelligently you know, sprinkled into the training program is good, but it's just the right amount like anything else. It's exactly what we found in some of our research as well. So it doesn't matter what the domain is, there's just a sort of sweet spot that you've got to hit where it's just difficult enough, but not too difficult. So we see this for, for mental things, like where you're trying to get people to learn how to do a certain kind of math problem and you mm -hmm. get scaffolding where they sort of learn, you do like slightly more difficult ones each time until you right. get to the point where you're able to do very tough ones. Um, we also looked at NCAA basketball teams, mm -hmm. and we looked at their performance during the season based on how difficult their preseason schedules were. And you find this sweet spot where it's just slightly more difficult than you would expect they'd be able to handle. It's this sort of pushing the margins um, mm -hmm. phenomenon. 
And once they overcome that, they're then much better prepared and they do much better. The results tend to be much better, controlling for differences in how strong the teams are generally. If you can put the team in the position when it's training where they're just beyond where they really can handle, where you think they can handle, they end up doing best. And then there's sort of a sort of drop off either side where it's too easy, there's obviously not much uh, benefit to practice. And then when it's much too hard, you get this sort of either learned helplessness or disengagement, lack of motivation. Yeah. We see, you know, a lot of our high performers are very anxious yeah. um, and they've made a very critical mistake is that they think their drive is their, you know, they think that anxiety is drive and it's not, right? Anxiety can be this, you know, highly over-monitoring, gets on its own loop kind mm -hmm. of idea, but they don't know the difference between drive and anxiety. And so they're running on it. And then the first failure is, I mean, it's straight, you know, it's into the jugular. There's no tolerance and there's no other self-concept. So do you see, you know, early in the training problems where people can't handle an early failure? Do they select out? Do they keep going? How do you handle? That's kind of where you have to have a very sort of um, systematic way of doing things. So you're not going to start out by having someone who's never skydived before, skydive out of a plane at night with equipment and night vision goggles and, you know, two miles away from your target or whatever. So it's, it's you know, allowing people success maybe initially so that they can fail later on and handle it. But, you know, I, I think... You can eliminate the fear of failure if you allow people to fail, too. There are some people, especially like in special operations community, they've generally been very good at what they've done their whole lives. And so if you don't introduce them to failure early on, then how are they going to deal with it when it really matters? Because in training, you're controlling the environment. Whereas, you know, on a mission, I mean, that's not the time to fail for the first time. Um, so it's really getting people to trusting your process. So it's making sure that you don't skip steps. So if you're talking about, like, the performance world, you know, you might have an athlete who has taken, because I'm a physical therapist in my civilian job, so there's a lot of carryovers between what I do in the military and what I do in my civilian job. But if you have, like, a, a team sport athlete who is getting ready for training camp, if that guy's been sitting on the couch for three months in the offseason and he's going to be sprinting at camp and he didn't do any sprinting at all before, before camp, he's more likely to get hurt. Now, if you're training that person in the offseason and you have him sprint right away without doing, you know, tempo work, acceleration work, then you skip some steps and maybe you'll get away with it, maybe you won't. But if you're training somebody or you're in sports medicine, you're playing poker with somebody else's body. So it's like from a risk reward standpoint, are you building that person up and setting them up for success? If you have that, if you systematize what you do and you're progressive and you make sure that people meet the standards before they go on and you're, you adhere to those standards, I think you're less likely to encounter those things. But you know, if people can't meet those standards initially, at least in our selection, you know, e even if they have the best intentions and they try really hard, like it's a, ultimately a rewards-driven profession. And if they can't handle it, they can't handle it. But that's why standards are so important. And I, like in the military and even in sports, you're seeing for political reasons, people want to make certain communities more inclusive. And I don't see that as a controversial issue at all. I think if someone can meet the standards and they're upheld for the right reasons, enough for political reasons, whoever wants to do these jobs should be able to do them. But it's when those other things get in the way and you compromise standards, that's one of the, I think, the easiest ways to, you know, to, to, uh, to make things more risky is by, by cutting corners like that. So you've got to trust your process. I think there's also a lot of influence in the past. So sometimes you've inherited a lot of coaching baggage and you maybe don't know that, right? So you can see a player shut down um, for a technique. And, and one of the things I feel like has been a big discussion here is sort of balancing what's good for a team and then what that individual athlete needs. And to me, it's sort of like a rainforest idea. You know, you can get these really specialized animals that can only do one tiny thing. Um, and then they don't know how to contribute to the whole. Um, but if you don't really give them the individual skills, um, then they're really stuck. 
Um, do you all have thoughts on sort of how, how to balance that individual for you? The stakes are high, but how do we keep the individual and what they're good at artistically and what they can know and then sort of the other teamwork pieces? Yeah, I think that's where you get at the question of whether practice is supposed to be this thing where you're sort of isolating a skill and you're getting better at that individual specific narrow skill, which is obviously very useful if you're a, if you play football and you're learning to take penalty kicks, you do a thousand penalty kicks over and over and over again, you get that skill down just right, a particular kind of golf shot, whatever it may be, there's good reason to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't practice in a context that mirrors as closely as possible in every possible respect what you'll experience during the game itself, then you're missing a huge component of what practice is. And I think more and more psychologists who study practice are recognizing that, that the, how important it is for that practice context to mirror in as many respects as possible the game. So would that be, you know, if you're imagining for a baseball game that you're, as a pitcher, thinking of a different count and how you would handle yeah. certain pressure situations or... Exactly, yeah. Go, going through as many of the scenarios as possible. Again, this is all about falling back on the default, which mm -hmm. is easier to do when there is a default that you've developed over time. So by, by having sort of specific targeted practice that's designed to mimic a particular experience, mm -hmm. rather than just a particular skill in, in sort of context-free isolation. I think that's sort of a very traditional way to practice. You just right. do this thing many times, develop motor memory, muscle memory, whatever it is. But having in your mind what a, a particular context that you'll experience um, in the game itself, I think, is critical. And you can tweak that. And often it's entirely mental. You're doing exactly the same thing. Say you're, you're pitching or you're, you're hitting a golf ball or whatever it is, but trying to imagine that you've just hit three double bogeys, what do you do right. on the next hole, is very different, even though it's essentially the same shot on that fourth hole mm -hmm. from imagining you've had a string of birdies or whatever it may be. Um, I think that, that, that mental transporting is really critical. And so more and more people are, are sort of devising scripts where you can get a person to transport themselves mentally into a particular context mm -hmm. so that when they actually are in that context, they know what to do. It's a lot like fear conditioning. Like if you're afraid of flying, the way psychologists deal with that is they get you to sit in the office and you progressively get more and more exposure deeply. Therapy. Yeah, exposure mm -hmm. therapy, exactly. And eventually you're in the office and you're imagining the whole process of the plane going down the runway and taking off. And I think that's what you need to do for practice in sports as well and, and pretty much any other context. You know, people talk a lot about empathy um, and then you know, what does that actually happen? What is the process? And I think one of the best explanations I've heard is it's perspective taking. Um, and that, you know, even in a little kid sport where, you know, everybody's mad at the goalie always <laughs> in soccer, um, it's a really humbling experience to take the kid who's being critical and put them in goalie, right? <laughs> and then, you know, but that idea of help me solve the problem from your perspective rather than just thinking that. So when you're putting together a PJ team, you have obviously specialization, but how do you all work with perspective taking? How do you understand everyone else's job? Well, because if you're in a leadership position, you will have done everybody's job to attain that leadership position. So I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy from that standpoint because you, you, you already are a subject matter expert on extrication and medicine. Now you're just not doing as much of the hands-on stuff, but you still have to understand it to coordinate it. So it's like, you know, a conductor doesn't necessarily need to know how to play every instrument, but they should know what it should sound like and how, how the whole should sound, you know, some of the parts. So that's kind of as a leader, you don't need to be as proficient with the hands-on stuff as you were when you were like more of a team member, but you still have had that baseline where you can understand it because if you don't understand, okay, like this guy, you know, has has lost three liters of blood, well, that means you've got to you've got to get him to like a trauma surgeon right away, and you know, being able to identify that 
instinctively versus having to have the medic sit there and give you a five-minute patient handover, that's very helpful because time is always of the essence in these situations. Um, so, and, and from an empathy standpoint, you know, we like to joke because uh, the, the team members and the worker bees, they'll always you know, bust the team leader's chops after a mission or a training scenario because it's like you were sitting there on the casualty collection point with your pen and your radio, and meanwhile these guys are like you know, drenched in sweat and they have blood and dirt all over them and like, they're dehydrated and they're, they've just been exerting themselves nonstop for like three or four hours. And the team leader, because he's trying to maintain situational awareness and not get his hands dirty, is you know, sitting there with his pen writing down, okay, <laughs> this guy should go here. And we, we rib about it, but that's how you need, you need it to be to, for it to operate effectively. But that team leader also appreciates how hard those guys are working. And so when you know, the team leader says, okay, like how much time do you need to get this done? And the guy says, I legitimately need two hours. He's not like, well, you gotta do it in 30 minutes because you know, three years ago, that guy was doing the extrication and he knew that it, 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 you can't do it in a half hour. So I think it helps to have gone through all those, you know, those different roles before you attain a leadership position. Mm -hmm. I see those perspectives. Yeah. So we actually have some additional time. We thought it would be fun for you all to be able to ask some more questions. And so we'll, unless there's other things you guys want to say before we open, we'll actually leave some additional time for questions. I'll just say one thing quickly, just about empathy. I think we think of empathy as the ability to sort of transport ourselves into the mind of another person. Mm -hmm. But it's also about transporting ourselves into the mind of ourselves in a different situation. Mm -hmm. So psychologists talk about an empathy gap, which is the idea that we're very good at imagining the here and now and understanding what's going on right now. Mm. But we're very bad at doing that. So it's, let's say it's the middle of summer and you're trying to imagine what it's going to be like in winter. It's very, very hard when you walk outside. It's 90 degrees or 32 degrees, depending on where you're from, <laughs> um, to imagine what it's going to be like when you're freezing again. We just aren't very good at that. We're better at that than other animals, but we're not great at it mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think that's why immersing ourselves in these different contexts or having experienced all of the different aspects that will then be looked down upon when you're a leader is so critical so that you, you have that ability to empathize with that, those other people and with yourself in different contexts. And that we vary in that ability. Yeah, we do. Um, Some people are obviously a lot better at it than others, yeah. And you know, the branch point is lemurs, in case you're wondering. <laughs> There's actually lemur studies in addition to cockroaches, that the place in that primate chain where social yawning disappears, the ability to share those basic emotions is lemurs. So don't tell your problems to lemurs. They don't care. <laughs> Any questions? Do you see a difference in thinking and training between men and women when it comes to thinking strategically, intuition, managing risk? Now the question is, does the woman answer it? Or, yeah. <laughs> or the researcher? You go first. You decide. No, you go first. <laughs> um, I, I don't know of strong gender differences in a lot of the effects. Uh, I think... I think men and women, I do know this for a fact, that men and women respond to the experience of having been put through a context where they fail differently. Women are better at that than men, generally speaking. Um, men can be sort of knocked down a peg much more easily than women can. This is just a general finding in, uh, in the learning and performance literature. So that's, that's one area where there is a bit of a difference. What that means is you've got to be a little bit more delicate with men when you put them through failure-based training, um, which is kind of, I guess, consistent with intuition, at least my intuition. And I think, too, another piece of it, when you look at how girls and boys are raised, there's a strong communication of cultural values in very simple tasks. And so there's some really, there's a great TED talk on raising girls to be brave and to think that risk is the goal rather than perfection. So once we set perfection, then you know, we'll estimate how close we are to that and end up 
you know, not opting in. Yeah, and raising guys not to just have a stiff, up, stiff upper lip and to be okay with failure as sort of a, an entrenched part of being a human being, I think is really important in, the, in, in practice and in improvement, generally speaking. And it's okay to cry outside of chess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had a question about, um, you know, I'm, I've done some work with firefighters. Yeah. I'm right here. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so I'm, I'm and, uh, working with firefighters, one of the things that happens, it's sort of like your work, Doug, but a little bit different in that sometimes there's a, a chief or an operator, right, that's sort of coaching someone who's in a building. Um, and there's kind of this coaching of the operator to keep their arousal level down, right? So the operator knows how far they can push it, and they don't sometimes trust what's going on on the outside the information that they're going out. They're trying to coach back. And I guess it's sort of a question for you too, Adam. I'm wondering if there's any research that's leveraged the observation effect that you're talking about in cycling and these other things. In other words, teaching operators or the coach, the chief, whoever it is, to segment and say, don't pay attention to all this stuff. I know about it certainly in sports, but I'm not sure if that's been in you know emergency rescue situations, if there's been some practice or some coaching or research that supports how you teach people to do that kind of segmentation. There's some research, uh, there's not a lot of, first of all, in the sports domain, there's not enough research. I think that's an area that demands a lot more attention and it hasn't got enough, especially from psychologists in sort of mainstream university programs. We're all fascinated, we all love sports, we watch a ton of it, but we don't do enough research in it. So I've started trying to branch out since it's about as fun a domain as I can imagine studying. <laughs> so we're trying to do more of that. There's a lot of work looking at, for example, um, like air traffic controllers and how the supervisor in an air traffic control setting during emergencies, how that person operates, how pilots operate during emergencies. I'm sure there's some looking at military pilots, but also civilian pilots. And they, they take data from black boxes, for example, and try to work out working backwards for events that led to negative outcomes and events that led to good outcomes. What happened? What was the difference? Um, was the person who was in charge riding the others pretty heavily or were they kind of laid back? Was there a sort of flat structure? Was it good that there was a hierarchy in place? And th there are no sort of key single findings. The one is that the, it doesn't really matter what the structure is as long as it's pretty well established who has which roles. And once you know what roles people are supposed to have and they adopt those roles consistently, outcomes are generally much better. And that also varies a lot across countries because you have different cultures with very different understandings of the ideal sort of hierarchical styles and patterns. So that's, uh, that's the only research I really know about. Yeah, I think the... Uh I mean, it's a team leader's job to, to identify if the team members are doing what they're supposed to do. So if, if an impediment to mission success is that one of the individual operators feels like he's overwhelmed, then certainly that team leader, just to ensure success, would intervene and try to encourage that person. But I would say that if it gets to that point, it's probably a training failure, because especially in a small team, if the team leader is, is devoting you know, cognitive capacity to, to motivating somebody when he should be talking to aircraft and looking at some of the bigger picture stuff, um, then the team leader can't be as effective because he's already task saturated and overwhelmed as it is. So I think that's where the preparation comes in because like I said, you, you have to do what you have to do from an intervention standpoint, but in an ideal world, if everybody in the team was sufficiently prepared, you would not need that team leader to be saying, hey, you know, calm down, like the training process should, you know, every now and then overwhelm somebody so that they are used to that kind of you know, those kind of circumstances uh, when they encounter it for real. Hi guys, uh, Phil Coles from San Antonio Spurs. I wanted to ask Adam, you gave the example of the red shirts in wrestling winning more. Yeah. And th that's a, an analogy I've used probably incorrectly for the last 
many years to to show that there might be a statistical relationship that doesn't have causation. Uh-huh. Now, if if there is causation, can you elaborate on that? And yeah. I'll put it on my list of failures. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we're just here to help. Right. You know? We're here to help. I think it is. So obviously, there um, in the Olympic Games, because they're randomly assigned to wear blue or red, that suggests that that's the only thing that's systematically varying that could possibly produce that outcome. But there are even better tests. So the tests that I think are more compelling are the ones where you have referees watching the same... So they've done this with wrestling, for example. You have wrestling referees, experts, who know the sport better than anyone, and you have them watch footage of a very closely fought contest between two competitors, and they're athletes they've never seen before. So they're watching this thing, and then they're, they're supposed to be giving points as the bout goes on, and they give points, and you look at what they say at the end of it. And then what they've done with that footage, as I mentioned earlier, is they've digitally altered it so that they change who's wearing red and who's wearing blue. And they've, they've done it also with who's wearing darker colors versus lighter colors, because that matters too. Darker seems more dominant. So in fact, teams, NHL teams that wear black uniforms tend to get called for many more penalties. That's another <laughs> example. But anyway, going back to your question about causation, yes. Mm -hmm. If you change, the, the only thing you've changed is which colour the different competitors are wearing, and then you get a whole lot of referees to make this assessment, you find that the referees who've watched competitor A wearing the red say competitor A did better. The ones who watched competitor B wearing red say competitor B did better. To me, that's a pretty, pretty tight test. I think that's a pretty strong uh, evidence, that's strong evidence of causation. And it's more that you have low control. So the causation yeah. in that case isn't about your own performance. So I think there's a piece of your point that actually is true, right? Which is that it's not just that you're in complete control of how the outcome goes, even if you're playing optimally. Yeah. There can be color differences that impact what There's happens. evidence of that too, though. There is some evidence that people behave differently. They behave more dominantly when they're wearing red rather than other colors. Isn't that so for dating sites? There's that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of evidence of that too. <laughs> yeah. So if you're ever going to set up a dating profile, wear red. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman, mm -hmm. you get more hits. Oh, lemurs, cockroaches, and dating websites. Mm -hmm. I want some other panel to top the uh, <laughs> wide-ranging uh, <laughs> advice we've got for you. Thanks. Hi, um, Dan McFarlane, Glasgow Warriors. Um, Thanks very much for sharing, guys, some, some really great stuff. Uh, Doug, I just wanted to um, address this uh, question to you. You, you, you emphasised the, the importance of your process um, in what you're doing, in your strategic thinking when you're on the mission site. Um, do you have anything built into your review structure um, when you get back from mission that would allow you uh, to question the process itself? Um, uh, this this applies in in sport all the time because obviously we have processes built into everything that we do in coaching, um, and sometimes we can get stuck in that process. But we must have our eyes open. Uh, do you have anything specifically that you can give us there? Yeah, absolutely. The, the feedback is an ongoing process. So anytime we do a real world mission or a training mission, immediately afterwards, as soon as guys like put the gear away and make sure that it's you know stock and ready to go in case another mission drops. We go right into a debrief where kind of rank goes out the window. There's not that top-down leadership. It's anybody who has anything to contribute can say it, and egos are put aside. And I think that you know somebody talked earlier today about doing a debrief the next day. That that might be fine, but the further removed you get from that incident, there's, a, there's an emotional component to learning, and it's not as salient or relevant the longer you wait. 
So I don't know what, and you might know better than this, yeah, better than me, Adam, like what that window is for that saliency, but the sooner after the training event you do it, the better. Because if you, you know, let's say you have a game on Friday and you're like, you know what, guys, you have the weekend off. We'll talk about the game on Monday. Like anything that you, the debrief won't be productive at all because guys are going to forget about it. So the sooner you can do it, the better. If for logistical reasons or if you're traveling, you can't do it right away, then maybe do it the next day or, or on the plane. But, you know, that, that feedback is continuous. So we don't, we don't allow ourselves to do things that we don't think are productive. And we're very honest with ourselves. And, you know, you, you have to have thick skin to be in our locker room because, I mean, in a lot of scenarios that we have, we'll have, like, people who are just there with cameras just observing and filming. So when someone says, hey, why'd you do this? And you could be like, no, I didn't do that. I did the right thing. And it's like, well, here's the footage. Yeah. You, can't, you can't BS anybody. And you've got to, you know, like I said, have that humility. But um, to totally ongoing process. And I, I think that if you're, if you're not doing that, then you're you're doing your, your process at a service. Yeah, I think that's right. Memory decays incredibly fast. So if you have footage and you can rein, kind of reinstate the context, get people to watch the footage again, then a day or two or three is fine. But without that, if you're trying to rely on memory, it's got to be almost immediate. People are not good at dealing with feedback when it's a long time afterwards because as with the empathy gap, they can't even remember what it was like to have been in that context once enough time has passed. You can do a quick gut check for yourself after you've had one of your heart-to-heart -heart talks. Ask them to text you an hour later what their take-home was. It's, oh, that's um, good. Yeah. <laughs> right? Whatever you thought you communicated, even 24 hours later or an hour later, what really stuck with them. Yeah. I do that every time I have to give difficult feedback to students, and it's very hmm. um, humbling and enlightening to find out what they really walked with. That's amazing. Easy. All right, I think we're up for time. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.